welcome to Socrates in the City. First of all, it's always touching and wonderful to see so many uh, old friends and new friends in the room, uh, also a handful of uh, pseudo-friends, you know who you are, and uh, it's very important uh, to be honest about that. I hate you. I hate you. Uh, you don't fool anybody. And, and sadly, a few former friends as well. Uh, that, uh, but you know, once, once I get the money back, we'll talk. But. Uh, we couldn't have done this for the last 20 years if not for the generosity of a number of you in the room. I want to particularly thank uh, David and Laura Thayer. I saw David is here. Uh, there are a number of you who've been uh, generous in, in helping us do this. Tonight, the big question that uh, we are daring to ask is how much uh, money does Peter Thiel really have? No, I mean, I mean really. I mean really. Of course, I'm, I'm joking, uh, but uh, the reason we do uh, have Peter here tonight, I, I want to know, this is my question, what is Elon Musk really like? That's, that's uh, I hope you don't feel used, but that's just the way it is. Um, there's, uh, uh, we've got a number of special uh, guests uh, here tonight. I won't point you out, unless you're in Coulter, who's sitting right over there. Uh, she's here with her boyfriend, Jimmy J.J. Walker from Good Times. Kid D- Dynamite is, uh, is in the house. And uh, I'm sorry. Am I embarrassing you? And uh, have you put on weight? What the hell happened? Unbelievable. Wow. I think you got a boyfriend. You could eat. I mean, come on. Um, anyway, uh, I'm so grateful uh, that Ann still might be my friend. And uh, following tonight's conversation, Peter and I are going to have a conversation up here. Uh, I think most of you know Peter has to leave immediately. Uh, I guess he's catching a bus at the Port Authority or something like that, <laughs> which is very impressive. If uh, I mean, even if I had a million bucks, I wouldn't go to the Port Authority. So I just got to say, that's kind of amazing. Um, in any event, he cannot stay around, so we have to uh, let him sneak uh, away. And um, the Union League Club has a couple of housekeeping things I should cover. Um, number one, anybody here wearing a catheter? Uh, actually, you don't have to, you don't have to uh, tell me, but uh, I've just, uh, we're tr- I'm trying to join the club to, uh, not the catheter club, the Union League Club, um, because they, uh, th- they, uh, they don't let you do events anymore. They have led us for 20 years, but unless you're actually a member. So I'm joining the club, and I just want to get all the rules right. So let me just say, so I've said it, if you're wearing a catheter, you need to uh, register with the club, let them know, and that's... I've done my part, okay? I've done my part, but you don't want them. It's very embarrassing if they, they catch you with an unregistered uh, catheter. I, I don't know why I bring up catheter. I guess it's, I'm looking at my friend Rich Egan. I always think of catheters <laughs> when I think of Rich. Uh, and I know, you, I know you've registered anyway, so. Um, <laughs> all right. Now, uh, I'm going to introduce uh, Peter Thiel. We'll get on with it. Now, I, I guess it's such an awkward thing. I, I realize uh, Peter's sitting here wondering what he's gotten into, uh, and I, and I, I guess, you know, just to be honest, Peter, I know you're probably a little intimidated by me. Uh, and let me, let me just say, I get that, okay? Uh, my intellect, my accomplishments, whatever it is, uh, my heart toward others, perhaps. Uh, 
But uh, a lot of times guests are intimidated by that kind of stuff. But I just want you to know, or I'm just letting you know, that I put my uh, legs on two pants at a time, just like everybody else. I'm no different. Uh, and uh, now I'm going to tell you who Peter Thiel is. Now, I get the problem with certain people is you already know who they are. So what am I going to tell you uh, in case you just stumbled in? Peter Thiel is an entrepreneur and investor, probably most famous for having started PayPal in 1998, uh, at which point he led it as a CEO, and then he took it public uh, in 2002 and got really, really rich. It's unbelievable. Uh, in, he, he, he made so much money that in 2004, he made the first outside investment in Facebook. Did you know that? Some of you knew that. Uh, and in making that investment, uh, he helped to accelerate the uh, establishment of a global bank, one world government, and the coming of the Antichrist, which is really... <laughs> I... He didn't, he didn't mean to do that. I want to be, be clear, but, you know, you've got to be careful where you invest because uh, you, you didn't, yeah. Okay. Um, I gave $20 to the breeding of a red heifer. I don't know if you know about that. But uh, so, hey, man, we're equal. Um, Peter has written uh, a number of books. The one we're going to touch on tonight uh, is, is called Zero to One. I think a lot of you um, are familiar with that. And I have by now for sure gone on too long and embarrassed Peter too much. So ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Peter Thiel. It's such a joy to have you here that I joke. Joking is my love language, so don't, uh, don't feel bad. You asked me upstairs where we're going to start, and I said, I don't know, because uh, a lot of the folks here don't realize that we, we were together last evening, and we had a conversation, and I realized we could just talk about anything. You say we, meaning human beings, are the only ones who can invent new things. Talk a little bit about that idea. If people have read the book, they know it, but you know the, uh, the vertical and the horizontal that you, that you refer to in the book as a principal thesis of entrepreneurship. Well, uh, the um, yeah. So I I, uh, I I believe there's sort of I outlined two basic ways that we have progress as a society, and one is um, what I describe as horizontal or extensive growth, which involves copying things that work, and this is uh, uh, most um, evidently seen through globalization um, in the last 40, 50 years, and then um, the other one is sort of intensive or vertical progress, doing new things. And uh, this is sort of iconically seen in technology or new inventions or, or things like that. And I think these are two sort of um, modalities of progress that I, I contrast. And uh, I think for those of us living in the United States, Western Europe, in the advanced countries, um, my claim is that the, uh, the second is much more important than the first. Uh, globalization uh, is perhaps good if you're in Burkina Faso or um, you know, in China or places where you have a lot of catching up to do. It, uh, it's not how we're going to improve uh, living standards in, um, in, in the West. Now, when you say globalization, just to be clear, when I read that in the book, it wasn't immediately clear to me what you meant. And in case there's anybody not getting that, you, you mean... I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that just to sort of spread what we have, right? In other words, not in a, uh, to, to take what we have in the West and the best of the West and to, uh, you know, get it into every corner of China 
uh, or, or any part of the world. That's what, that's what you mean, effectively. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I mean in, the, in the standard sense. I mean, it means all these different things. It's basically sort of homogenization of the world, convergence, uh, things becoming the same. If you, when you describe the world as the developed and developing world, that is a globalization narrative. The, developed, the developing countries are the ones that are going to become developed by copying and converging. And then it's also an anti-tech narrative because the developed world is a place where nothing new is going to happen. It's developed, it's done, it's finished. And this is very different from the way we would have described the world 50 years ago when we would have described it in terms of the first world and the third world. And the third world was permanently screwed up and the first world was the one that was technologically advancing. And so um, we're living in a world that is uh, extremely pro-globalization, that has bet everything on globalization, and that is, um, uh, that is not at all that excited about uh, progress in, uh, in other forms. And uh, my, you know, my, my underlying thesis is that uh, we've had relatively little progress in technology broadly defined um, in, the, in the West in the last 50 years. There's perhaps been you know, a narrow zone of progress around uh, the world of bits, computers, internet, mobile internet. Um, um, even that, uh, we can get into debates as to whether it's uh, positive or negative that you sort of alluded to a little bit in the, the intro, and I'm not sure I'm going to take you up on that, but, uh, we can, we, um, but, uh, but certainly... Um, I just said that because I don't care. Certainly, um, um, you know, most engineering fields were bad fields for people to go in in the Western world in the last 40 or 50 years. If you, if you, you didn't want to become a mechanical engineer, chemical engineer, um, electrical engineering was already on its way out when I was at Stanford in the late 80s. Um, and certainly, if you were so stupid as to become an aeroastro engineer or nuclear engineer, um, that, that was a bad idea, uh, a full stop for the last 40, 50 years. And, uh, and I, I, think, um, I, I do think that uh, a lot of the challenges and problems we have in our society is that we are, you know, we are no longer progressing as, as fast as uh, we're often told. You, you make this case really strongly, and I was just staggered by, um, I, don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but you, you just make this uh, statement in the book uh, that, in a way, since 1970, we haven't progressed much. And when I read that, I thought, that's, that's the first thing I want to ask you. In other words, when you're talking about not much happening in, in, in 50 years. I sort of get it, but tell us uh, what you mean by that, and at some point you can bring up Apollo 11 and Woodstock as you did last night, because I, I, it was a very fascinating way of framing the whole thing, I thought. Well, um, I mean, I, I'm not saying there's been zero progress in the last 50 years, but uh, um, you know, outside of the world of computers, there's not been much. And if you were, you know, the main function of our iPhone seemed to be to distract us from the way in which we're um, in subways that are 100 years old and the ways in which nothing in, in, the, re- in the rest of the world has uh, changed or progressed very much. Um, and if you look at uh, you know, cars or houses or things like this, haven't changed that much in the last 20, 30 years. Maybe 70s were still a little bit different, but, uh, but it, it has not, um, it's not progressed uh, very much at all. There's, um, you know, I think there's a meta-level question you could ask, which is that you know, in science, we measure Avogadro's number, the fine structure constant in physics, to many, many significant figures. But the question of the progress of science, how fast it is progressing, is it accelerating? Uh, is it decelerating? Is it relatively stagnant? Um, never gets asked. And if it gets asked, um, we get nothing but short propagandistic answers from, let's say, university presidents who will tell us, using adverbs uh, and as a substitute for thought that clearly and demonstrably science is progressing <laughs> faster than ever before. Um, and uh, I, think, I think it is instead rather stuck. And we can, 
we, we can go through sort of any of a number of places where things have fallen way short of expectation. Nixon declared war on cancer in 1970. It was going to be de- defeated by the bicentennial by 1976. So we're, you know, fast forward 50 years, we're presumably 50 years closer to curing cancer than we were 50 years ago, but the expected time has gone up quite a bit. Well, you, you can't forget that LBJ declared war on poverty in 1965. So that was really meant mainly as a joke. Uh, but when you say that Nixon, um, I, I really have to say, I'm, I'm hugely fascinated by, I mean, you, you are a science guy, and so uh, I, I want to hear more from you about this, because when we think of, uh, we were talking about this last night, uh, the Manhattan Project, uh, the Apollo Project, Put a Man on the Moon, those were times when people came together and accomplished extraordinary things. There's just no way around it. And obviously, uh, you know, since, uh, since then, you, you're right. We don't seem to have done anything like that. But is there really nothing we can think of? I mean, would, would the Human Genome Project at least impress you a little bit? Um, a little bit, although I'd say it fooled me a lot since, um, you know, I thought it would translate it into right. all sorts of cures by right. now, 20-plus uh, right. years right. later. Right, right. And, uh, and so... Um, so, so, you know, there, there's always sort of a question how this actually translates. Uh, um, and, we, you know, we can, you know, I, I think um, even if we say that things are progressing at roughly the same rate, I think that they're slower, they're objectively slower, life expectancy is not going up anymore. This would be like one way to measure progress in medicine is how fast is life expectancy going up. Last three years has actually been going down, which is, you know, like even someone as um, pessimistic as me would have never predicted that, it's, that it actually would, would go backwards because surely, you know, we might progress more slowly. It's, it's scary. That's scary to hear, you know, to hear that. And I think one of the things I, I, you know, the sort of the failure, the question, you know, why has this happened or what changed, what went wrong is always a little bit overdetermined. But, uh, but certainly one cut on it is that uh, big science is something like an oxymoron. And uh, when you make it big, it stops being science. It, uh, and, um, you know, we have probably about 100 times as many people today in the world or in the United States who have PhDs in the sciences as in 1920. Um, if progress was happening still at the same rate as in 1920, that would, um, it would, it, you would infer that the productivity of the average scientist is 99% less than it was 100 years ago. And um, I, I think it's even, it's even worse than that. So, so one, you know, one partial history I would tell of what happened is that uh, we had a sort of a decentralized, healthy, um, scientific world um, before the New Deal. And, um, you know, it was heterodox. It was science as discovery, not science. You know, I always think you have science as discovery, which is sort of the science one now only reads about in children's books on Einstein. It's sort of like a creative person thinks of new things. And then there's science as governance, where it's sort of, you know, um, you're a robot in a lab, and that's what you do. And most of science is science as governance, not science as, as discovery. So what, and, and so what, what I, yeah. part of my history of what happened is that in the 1940s with, with the Manhattan Project, um, it was possible to take this pre-existing healthy system and accelerate it one time only. The New York Times, um, I'm going to paraphrase this, but this was about four or five days after the Hiroshima bomb, uh, the op-ed in the New York Times was, um, you know, um, hopefully this will silence um, 
the sort of conservative and libertarian people who said that the army could not ever direct scientists and just tell them what to do uh, because the army has proven all these people wrong and hopefully they will now be quiet because in, they, they were able to get a new invention to the world in three and a half short years of the bomb that uh, if you'd left these prima donna scientists to their own devices, it might have taken them 50 years. Wow. So um, now I will say the New York Times doesn't write editorials like that anymore today. And, uh, and I think part of, the, part of the history is you were able to accelerate science one time by pouring money into it and scaling it, but then it came at the price of completely corrupting the institutions. It still worked with NASA and Apollo, but um, at this point it is all uh, just a slow bureaucracy. It's, you know, it's peer review, never have any heterodox ideas, and you have sort of a, you've created a very large monoculture, which is uh, pretty unhealthy. So, that's, and that's, that's sort of one cut of what happened. It was, it was, you know, the government was able to accelerate it and then it, at the price of destroying it forever. There's so much uh, here, but, I, but, the, but the basic thesis, I, I have to say, it, it startled me. I thought, huh, I haven't thought very much uh, about this. Uh, I think you mentioned in the book that, you know, uh, jetliners, you know, in the 60s, everybody can jump on a jetliner and we can go 650 miles an hour and today... If anything, we're going slower, but we're certainly not going faster. And for sure, as a kid, I was sure that we would have flights to the moon or at least that planes would be able to go 2,000 miles an hour or something like that. So I I get it when I begin thinking about it. But I guess my question is, is there anything we can do? Is this the same problem we have with growing government? Is, is, Is this just part of what happens in a free culture? Is that... Entropy uh, causes you to become less and less free unless people are really vigilant about understanding how freedom works. Well, I think, um, let's see, uh, you know, I'm pessimistic in the sense I think we've had stagnation. I don't think it's a problem of money, which is one of the liberal explanations. If we had Larry Summers here, he might say there's stagnation. Oh, yeah, we need more money, sure. We're not spending enough money, so I don't think it's a shortage of money. Um, But I also don't think that um, it's a natural problem. I don't think it's the case that all the low-hanging fruit has been picked and there are no new ideas, there are no new discoveries that, that we could make. So I'm, I actually think it's more of a cultural problem, which is you know, um, better than nature, hard, but still hard to change. And there's sort of a series of, of, of cultural things that are wrong about the nature of science. We're not willing to take risks. We're not, um, you know, there's, there's too much conformity of thought. Um, but, uh, but I think we could be making progress in all these areas. There's no reason we couldn't cure, cure cancer. There's no reason we couldn't cure Alzheimer's. And when you say that, right, um, why is there no, why, why uh, do you think that's the case? Because I think those of us who've lived, it's, it was kind of like growing up with the Soviet Union. You sort of just assume it'll always be there. Uh, you just assume we'll always be dealing with cancer. When people talk about a cure for cancer, why should we assume uh, that that's possible? It's always a question, who has the burden of proof in doing these things? And uh, I think, um, you know, I think that uh, I would say the burden of proof is still on the side that it's, um, you know, if you say it's impossible, there's no mathematical proof that it's impossible. There's nothing, we don't know enough about biology to say, say this stuff doesn't work. Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think one, you know, one cut I always have on biology is it's, it's sort of um, a, the field that uh, people with lower IQs went into. It's sort of, the, it's sort of like people had bad, bad math genes went into biology. Any biologists in the room? One, two. You know, I, I think uh, there probably are some cultural interventions that, uh, that could, could improve it quite a bit. F- physics might be harder. You know, we, we seem to not be making progress on string theory, and maybe we're not going to make a lot of progress there because you've had smart people working on that. So that's one, 
I'd be a little bit more agnostic on what you could do. But, uh, but biology, I think, uh, you could do a lot better. And, um, and I think uh, the, the, the explanation that it's in the nature of the world that you can't change this, you have to always think of this as a baby boomer scientist who's failed. And you sort of, if we're talking to an imaginary conversation with a baby boomer cancer researcher, first, line, first thing is we're making so much progress, we're going to cure cancer in the next five years. Uh, but you've been saying that for the last 50 years. Um, well, um, we don't have enough money. Second line of defense. Um, uh, responsible, you've been getting more money every year for 50 years. Um, and then third line of defense is, uh, well, it's an impossible problem. Uh, and we're doing the best we can. And so if you think of these as you know, the, um, the excuses that are made, the natural excuses by a generation of scientists who failed to do things, um, we should take the contrarian view. The minority view is that it's... Yeah, it's stagnant, it wasn't about the money, and it's the culture, and therefore um, these things could be fixed but and we're doing a lot better. But you're not suggesting, I don't think, that they don't want to cure cancer. In other words, I would assume that anybody uh, working in a lab, any place, it, it would be their dream uh, to, to get on the map to have done that. So what, what do you think is the, is the issue? You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really sure what, what, what I would say they want to do. I, th- I think they, uh, they want to get money from the government to do... Um, to get to keep um, keep whatever research they're so doing. So is this going. like welfare? They're disincentivized because they're happy. It's certainly it's certainly questions about this do not get asked. You know, one of um, one of my um, one of the people I know at Stanford is uh, this guy Bob Laughlin. He got a Nobel Prize in physics in the late uh, 1990s, and Professor Laughlin believed that once he had a Nobel Prize in physics, he would have um, complete academic freedom. He could do whatever he wanted. So he was ex- an extremely delusional person, uh, as you can tell. Um, and, um, and then, you know, the area he decided to go after was not something like, you know, climate change or evolution or, you know, topics like this that are pretty dangerous. He went after something far more dangerous than, uh, than those topics. Uh, he was convinced there were all sorts of other scientists, um, um, and he started with the biology department at Stanford that were basically stealing money from the government and engaged in semi-fraudulent research. And you can sort of imagine how this movie ended, and you know, he, uh, Professor Laughlin promptly got defunded, and um, and so the questions about the integrity of the process are ones that uh, nobody can ask. We have a we have a replicability crisis in science. People are starting to talk about that, but you, the, the politically correct way to talk about it is always in broad statistical terms. That uh, What's, what do you mean replicability crisis? Um, well, there are all these um, experiments that can never be replicated, and so. Um, I think psychology, something like 80% of the psychology results can't be replicated. Is psychology a science? Well, <laughs> it, it, it claims to be doing experiments that, in theory, you should be able to replicate. Um, and, um, and then the replicability crisis suggests that, uh, yeah, there's something between lying and fraud and self-delusion. Or, and there's some, something very weird going on in, in a lot of these fields. Um, and you can talk about that. You can't, of course, you can't name names. This particular scientist is... No, the results can be replicated. That that gets to be very problematic. So yes, yeah, so I think it's a I think it's a pretty corrupt system at this point. Um, I I read earlier today. I got my Discovery Institute uh, uh, newsletter in the mail, and they were talking about James Tour. Uh, he is a nano scientist in uh, Houston at Rice University. Are you familiar with him at all? He. Um, he really seems to be doing some truly groundbreaking things, the kinds of things that you're saying uh, aren't happening very much. I, I find it uh, ironic or at least funny that he is 
very outspoken about his Christian faith. I mean, clearly one of the greatest scientists of our time is very outspoken about his Christian faith. But you can't argue with these kind of results. I don't think there's a nanoscientist in the world uh, who really could touch him. You know, he's, he's the best. So there, there are things happening. And I guess I wonder, I wish he were here, he could answer the question. But um, I wonder if there are places where the culture is different than, than what you're describing it. Um, I think if it's messed up in the United States, we should assume it's, it's worse than most of the rest of the world. I mean, the, Uni- the United States is the country on the frontier. It's the country where we do new things. And so if it's gotten very hard to do new things in the U.S. Um, you know, you're not, going to be, you're not going to be saved by science in, in Western Europe or Japan or um, you know, China or any of these places. Um, so this is, this is our area of comparative advantage as a country. You know, we're a frontier country. We're the place where you should be able to do new things. And if even in the United States it's, it's, it's very challenged, uh, it's, it's likely to be that way in most other places. Although, I mean, I guess you'd say that we are still doing new things because China is still ripping us off. They're not doing new things. They're, you know, in other words, they're, they're ste- globalization uh, for them means, you know, stealing our technologies. But it is interesting to me that we still... Yeah, they, we still... They, they haven't quite gotten the memo that we're not doing that much. So uh, they, they're, still, they're still trying to steal a lot, but I, I, I'm not sure um, they've figured out that there isn't that much left. Right. Well, when you talk about us being the only ones who can invent new things, obviously, um, you, well, I should say you seem to be alluding to the idea in that statement in your book uh, that... We are unique. We're created in the image of God. Obviously, uh, there's something there. Uh, I want to know if we could explore that a little bit. Because it's a concept, I mean, the idea that anyone would be able to do what you describe in your book, to come up with something completely new and, you know, uh, suddenly go vertical in that way, it, it sounds miraculous, right? Like, why should we be able to do anything like that? Um, well, there's a lot, a lot of different uh, threads here. I, I think that, uh, I think that uh, one of the, you know, I think one of the healthy modalities of, uh, of, of progress, of, of thinking about the future in, in business or, you know, in, in politics and in culture, in, in science, is that you have, I think you have some sort of definite goal and you have agency and it's, it's directed towards that, uh, towards that goal. And, um, and that you, you know, you have agency, and you, you design, you create, you create the future. Um, and uh, I think I often contrast this um, to to the sort of view of the future as just a fundamentally unknowable, random process. And um, and so if we if we say that it's just completely random, completely unknowable, that's that's sort of an abdication of agency. You know, the powerful images of the future are are concrete; they're specific. And they're, they're things we can, we can work towards and we can, we can build towards. I think one of the things that's, that's gotten very um, unhealthy in, in the Western world is we no longer have a, uh, an idea of the future that's, um, that's powerful. We don't have an image of how it's going to look different in 10, 20 years that will be generally better. I've, I've sort of come up with a, this, an illustration for this in, in uh, Western Europe, where if you ask, what are the actual pictures of the future people have in Western Europe that are different from the present. Because if it's just Groundhog Day, if it's an eternal Groundhog right. Day, that's not charismatic, that's politically weak. And I believe there are three pictures that people have. Uh, behind door number one is Islamic Sharia law, and if you're a woman, you'll be wearing a burqa. So that's a, that's a very different picture. 
um, behind door number two is the uh, Chinese communist AI that will be monitoring you all the time in every way possible. It's sort of the big eye of Sauron, to use the Tolkien reference, that will be uh, looking at you in all times and all places. And behind uh, door number three is um, Greta Thunberg, and it is you'll be puttering around with an e-scooter and you'll be recycling everything. <laughs> and um, and those, are, those, are the only, those are the only three doors. There are no other doors available. Um, and I, I didn't want to make a pro-Greta argument, but I actually uh, I can understand why she's relatively more charismatic than the big eye of Sauron and uh, the, um, the, uh, the ISIS Sharia law. And... Uh, and, that's, and you have to understand that if you're, if you're going to create an alternative, you have to have an alternative-specific picture of the future. You have to have an alternative of, of what the future can look like. And until you have that, you know, she's going to win. Uh, you mean Greta? Yes. Wow. Um, she's well, just I, a I, kid. I, I, I feel so I, sorry I, I, for actually, her. I, actually, given, I, given those three choices in Europe, I, I don't even blame them. Right. Uh, I just feel so sorry for her. She's a she's a kid. My gosh, it's so insane that her parents uh, are allowing her uh, to to do this. Um, yeah, when you're talking about Europe like that, it is interesting because I always think of America. I'm certainly not alone in this. We, you know, and and you have to really go back to the '60s, as you say. But uh, we really believed you can put a man on the moon. You can do these things. The reason, and we were talking about this last night, so we, we can go back to this, where uh, the reason it seems to me, or the reasons that we don't have that view of the world anymore, one of them, and I've never heard anyone say this before, but I literally thought of it last night, if there were a place near the moon, a little farther away, we would have gone there next. But the next place we could have gone is Mars. And it's so far away, we just kind of sank into the beanbag chairs and started playing video games because, you know, we went to the moon, we're done, that, that was it. But uh, so that, that's one really practical thing that, you know, when you achieve something like that, once you climb Mount Everest, you have climbed the highest mountain. You are done with that. You can't really, there's not uh, a way uh, to do that again. Well, but I think, I think there were a lot, I think there were, I think there were a lot of things you could do that were not in outer space. There were a lot of things you could do on this planet here on Earth. There were a lot of things. Um, and, of course, this was not the only thing that went wrong. People were expecting to go uh, to Mars. But, you know, we, we landed, Apollo 11 landed on the moon in July of 1969. And four, uh, three weeks later, you had Woodstock. And I think, you know, in some ways, there was a cultural shift. And it was the shift from thinking about, um, about sort of an exterior world that we were going to change and improve and, and explore to an interior world of psychedelic drugs and yoga and meditation and video games in a basement. And, um, and I think this shift from exteriority to interiority is, uh, is something that's characterized the, uh, the, last, uh, the last 50 years. Let's talk about that, because when you say interiority, you're, um, we, we have to say that uh, all interiority isn't bad, right? In other words, if I am not, uh, you know, uh, taking acid or uh, wasting my life in my parents' basement playing video games, or there, there are a number of things that I could be doing uh, that are somewhat interior, if, if uh, I'm using the term right, that are, that are good things. I could be reading great books. I could be thinking about great ideas. So I know you don't mean to be denigrating that. Uh, and then when you talk about exteriority, if that was the term... If you really have gone to the moon, um, what 
what do you mean, right? Like, you know, if, there's a, if there isn't another mountain to climb, that I guess the point is that there's something about reaching the moon that really is hard to top. It doesn't mean that there aren't other things to do. But it seems reasonable to me that once you reach the moon, it's hard to come up with a second act. Um, well, we, we, can, we, can, we can debate about how the history, um, you know, how, how, much, how many choices there really were and what the counterfactuals were. And, um, and, and yes, we, didn't, we, didn't, we have not yet sent um, a man to Mars. Um, that still is probably, you know, quite a ways, quite a ways off. Um, there's something about space that, you know, has, has lost, you know, a lot, of its, um, a lot of its magic and its appeal. But I think, I think there were many, you know, there were many other things that we could have done where we, we could have progressed. And, um, and, uh, and, I, and I think on some level, it's not, again, this is the question, is it nature? Is it just too hard to get to Mars? Or is it the culture that we're not, we're not reaching, we're not, we're not trying? Well, one example of this that I've noticed for years is that I thought since I was a kid, nothing has gotten better in the sense that there are no new bridges or tunnels. They were all built uh, before I was born or around the time I was born. I mean, the idea of building another bridge across the Hudson or another tunnel. And I thought, what a wild idea that, that they were doing this. They were doing plenty of this uh, in the earlier parts of the century. Yeah, the, 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 and then it just stopped completely. The, the number I've seen is that in Manhattan um, or New York City, um, in inflation-adjusted dollars, it costs about 50 times as much to build a mile of subway <laughs> in real dollars as it did 100 years ago. And wh- so, why? I mean, um, you know, 50% well, of that is it's, the unions. It's, it's a corrupt government. It's, uh, it's environmental rules. It's, it's, you know, it's, all, it's, it's all sorts of things. But, uh, um, but yes, it's, it's, um, you know, if, you, if you define you know, one, ver- one sort of economic definition of technology is doing more with less. Yeah. And there are a lot of these sort of profoundly um, diseased, sick institutions, including the city of New York, um, where, um, which are characterized as very anti-technological, they're, where we're doing, um, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing, you know, we're doing, we're doing uh, less, um, we're doing less and less with more and more. And this is true of education. It's true of you know, probably significant parts of our healthcare system, where um, you're not. It's costing more and more to to at best stay in place. Since we're we're leaping around, let me just uh, pick up on something you've uh, you've touched on here. Uh, you. Um, you mentioned uh, in our previous conversation that universities uh, today, the level of corruption in academia is similar to the corruption of the medieval church and that we need some kind of reformation. Um, can you expand on that? Because I think for sure most people in this room know that something is very, very wrong uh, with the academy. Um, but when you talk about it as corruption, talk, talk about that because it's uh, well, just let me, let me the sort of, center of a lot of what so we're talking the, about. Well, the, anal- the, basic, the basic analogy is that uh, you know, if you sort of think of the eve of the Reformation 500 years ago, um, you, had, uh, you, know, you had sort of runaway indulgences, which are like the runaway tuition costs. You had this sort of priestly class that often had sort of tenured sinecures, which are sort of like the professors. And the universities, they even have a sort of soteriology, a theory of salvation, where if you, um, if you get a diploma, you're saved, and if you do not have a college diploma, you end up in a bad place. You know, you go to Yale or you go to jail, that, that sort of thing. <laughs> and, um, and so I think, um, I think it, is, um, it, is, um, it is sort of, uh, yeah, so I, th- I think we should think of the universities as, you know, in a sense, the successor to the Catholic Church. It is the atheist church. And, um, you mean the bad Catholic church. I just want to be clear. I'm not Catholic. 
but I'm a pro-Catholic, even, even most, non-Catholic. Even most, even most Catholics like this because they, they think the Catholic Church is pretty screwed up. And so, um, so if, if the universities are as bad as the Catholic Church, maybe the Catholic Church isn't as bad as well, people often but, think. Okay, so. but to talk about the Catholic Church of, of the pre-Reformation, there's no question that uh, what was going on there was bad. I mean, I think that uh, many people like you know Erasmus and Francis, who never would dream of leaving the church, they knew it was bad and it needed reformation. So we're and, and, and the reformation had to come from without. These institutions, they are not reformable from within. That's, that's, the, that's the main point of the analogy I would give. Um, you know, so I, what do we do with, with universities? What do you mean? We just try to get people out of them. We try to, you know, uh, you're, you're, you know one, one of the... Um, one, of the things I, uh, one of the things I tried to do uh, years ago, I had this fantasy of starting a new university that would be sort of a better version, sort of an all-around good liberal arts education with less political correctness, less you know, thought control. And um, one of the people who worked for me uh, spent about a year looking at all the universities that had been started in the preceding 100 years, 1907 to 2007, when we were, when we were looking at this. And it was a sorry tale of um, donor intent betrayed, wasted money, just all the stuff had not worked. And you got the sense that um, there's something about uh, this, this setup that's, 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 that's really bad. Um, there's, there's sort of a mathematical description you can give of this where um, corporations are mortal beings, and over time corporations get worse and worse. Uh, and then uh, if they're sort of very corrupt, they sort of go out of business. And uh, universities tend to be immortal. They last forever. And, you know, the top universities, the most prestigious ones in the U.S., are the ones that were here, you know, 17th, early 18th century. And so we're, we're sort of dealing with the corruption of, of something that's a quasi-immortal being. I mean, I, I don't think it's, you know, omnipotent. I don't think they're omnipotent, but... Uh, I'm glad to hear that. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's gotten... It's dramatically... They're dramatically I mean, de- worse than they were 30... Beings, they're they're dramatically that. worse than they were... 30, 40 years ago, and uh, it's still very hard to come up to alternatives. There's still some sense in which, you know, Harvard is at the top of the pecking order. But, um, but yeah, I think, I, think the, uh, I think we have to try to find just ways to exit the system altogether. There's, well, but there's, isn't there's, it ultimately... There's, there's no way to sort of co-opt it, to change it from within. Right. Those are all, I think, complete fool's errands. But I, I guess my question would be, don't you have... A situation where Harvard and Yale or the New York Times to skip over to, you know, another kind of institution. They're institutions that have value because people say they have value. Right. It's that simple. Right. Uh, I having been to Yale, I can say that uh, it has really, really minimal actual value. There's no question in my mind that the value that it has is. Uh, I, th- I think. But I think when you're saying things like this, uh, that's not what you're not even supposed to say this. What do you, why? Well, because um, if, if they have value, because people say they have value, then if someone like you says the things you're saying right now, that's undercutting what other people are supposed to say. Right. Well, that's the whole point of this. That's, uh, that's why we're here. Uh, I don't mean to freak you out, but that's exactly what I want to talk about, because it's, you, re- you realize this is true, right? There are people who are unwilling uh, to say that, or unwilling yeah, to see let, that, that they become politically correct uh, Asylums. They're just there's pure madness, and their kids 
you're, you're spending all this money so really so that your kid can, can catch this virus and have a, have a messed up worldview forever. And once people realize that once stop, people stop giving money, once people start stop saying, I want my kid to go to that place, those places won't any longer be able to have the value that they're seen to have. And so you... I'm slightly more pessimistic. I mean, I I think they are very robust. They're they're not going to go away that that quickly. The analogy I would have for Yale or Harvard is it's like a Studio 54 nightclub. And you have... um, Which is probably bad for the morals of the people, and maybe it's good for their status, and we can sort of debate which is more important, which is less important. But uh, these institutions are remarkably robust. You know, if you were... Um, if you were a university president at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, one of these places, and you had some secret fantasy of getting lynched, and you wanted a coalition of alumni, students, faculty to come after you, you'd give a speech saying, you know, we, have, we are giving such a great education that we're going to increase the enrollment. We're going to let more people in. We're going to double or triple our enrollment over the next 20 or 30 years. We're not, you know, since we're serving the whole world, you know, in 1970, there were 200 million people in the U.S. Now there are 8 billion in the world. It's 40 times as many people. We're just going to double our enrollment. We'll still be... Um, and you would get lynched because people understand it is a zero-sum tournament. It's not a positive-sum education. It's not about education. It's a Studio 54 nightclub you're running. And, um, and you know, for, for what that is, it can be pretty robust for, for a long time. Yeah. There's probably some point where it gets so deranged that... Um, I mean, we're effectively there. I, I honestly have to say that where we are now, there's a brilliant novel out. I've interviewed the uh, author on my radio program, Scott Johnston. It's called Campus Land. And it is brilliant. It's a brilliant uh, criticism, lampooning of the whole world of, you know, uh, Ivy League uh, culture, but generally uh, uh, higher ed. And you see that it, it eats itself at some point. We're kind of at that point. How long can it sustain itself? I mean, uh, again, I say the same thing about the New York Times. The New York Times has value because people say it has value. But when you really look at these places, at some point, the word has to get out to the alumni, to the parents. It's not as good as it used to be. It's not what it once was. Somehow, that, that I mean, y- you have to allow that it's possible to have that kind of a we could call it a market correction. It has to be possible. And, and I would have predicted it 30, 40 years ago. So it's been, it's been, it's been harder. I'm not saying, like, next decade, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I think they, they may finally break this decade. But, but it's, there's probably something about the student debt that's unsustainable. And we had $300 billion in, in 2000. It's up to $1.7 trillion today. So there are, I think there are certain trends that I, I can't see going on for another decade. Even and so I think something is, is going but to break. Isn't it a little bit like the, 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 the Soviet top Union? Is not so clear. It, isn't it a little bit like the Soviet Union? I mean, at some point, it has to break down. At some point, the truth will out. Uh, so the fact that it could go on for seven decades is horrifying. But it did end, you know. And I, I guess I wonder because I wouldn't have said that a hundred years ago, uh, Yale and all these places were corrupt, lost, uh, leading young people astray. Uh, I, I don't think it was true. I think it's something that's more recently true, or it's a kind of a flower that has finally come to bloom. Uh, we know that Yale was going, a lot of these schools were going in those directions already in the 20s and the 30s, but it didn't really come into the mainstream so that you have the madness that you're seeing uh, until, until now. So I guess it seems to me that it, it will take a while, but, but it, it has to fall apart. In other words, I'm not sure how they can sustain it.
You know, I, I, um, I, I think the, the overall system can't be sustained because of the, um, the, the runaway debt. The, uh, the top parts of it, um, you know, it's possible it can just keep going because it's, it's exclusive, and this is, this, is what, uh, this is what drives it. You know, I think, um, I think you know, I have this sort of uh, theory that one of the reasons, you know, Republican political leaders, senators, congressmen, governors, aren't going after the universities more is because they still just want their kids to go to the right. top schools. So if right. you were if you were if you were a senator or some, some of those people or, are in this room by the way. Or you know or and you know it's um we had we had this you know we had this crazy we had this crazy college uh, admissions thing where it was you know people go and get in through the front door or the back door or the side door and um and the you know I I think all these places there's probably some number even at Harvard or Stanford where if you make this number your kid can get in no matter how unqualified your child is i think it's something like 25 million dollars um, and you know it, i think it would be helpful to publicize these things but the fact that there are people who are doing this suggests it's going to keep going for some time and it's it's yeah it's but it, but it is i mean I, I i know what you mean and i and i fear you may be right but i'm still thinking that because we're talking about this um, people hadn't been talking about this it seems we we've arrived at a point where it's possible some people will see this. And, and if you see what is happening um, at, at these colleges, it's, it's, it's dramatically different. I mean, when I was at Yale in the 80s, um, it was hard for the alumni to know the lunacy of political correctness that we were living out. It was hard for them to get it. But now, because of the way the world is, because of social media, um, I don't mean to bring up a sore subject, but we have to talk about social media. Um, but it seems to me that... that People can see things that they wouldn't have been able to see uh, even 30 or, or 40 years ago. But that, that's a larger conversation. I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about uh, social media. And uh, uh, yesterday, our genius friend Ann Coulter was saying that you, Peter Thiel, ought to create a social media platform that will not kick people off if, if they have the quote-unquote wrong views. Uh, will you? I, I, look, I think that uh, I think that, uh, that there is sort of a question how um, I'm, on, I'm on the board of Facebook, so I have to always be like very careful what I say here. And I'm, 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 I'm not I'm not planning. You're on the board of Facebook. I am on the board of Facebook. Holy cow! And so I'm I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, I have to be somewhat careful what I what I what I say in these contexts. But um, I think that. Uh, um, Look, I think I think there are um, obviously um, all these questions about the homogenization of thought, the, the way in which um, these institutions uh, channel thought and um, you know do not allow as wide a variety of views to be heard, and that sort of the Overton window seems to always get narrower and keep shifting to the left on, on the discussions we have in our society. Um, I think that uh, you know there, there was. There was a hope in the late 1990s that the internet was going to be like the Gutenberg press, that it was fundamentally this technology that would widen debate um, just like um, uh, and that it would be sort of Protestant, it would be sort of somewhat schismatic, you'd have, be able to dissent from, from views, um, and that it would, ha- would have the effect of, of undermining the monopoly of these, uh, of, these um, of, of the large um, you know, old media type, type companies. Um, you know, if I, if I, if I had to give a reading of the landscape in, in 2020, I think um, it's, it's certainly not um, as libertarian as people thought it was going to be in the late 90s. 
I would still um, I would still defend the Silicon Valley companies partially in the sense that I think they are still there still are more views that can be broadcast on the internet than you get um, in in you know in the New York Times or the Washington Post or or things like this. Could you set a lower bar? Um, well, that's that is the that is know, the alternative. That you. is the alternative. But, you know, that is the alternative. But, and um, and and you know, I think that. Uh, you know, if, if, let me. I'll, I'll pick a little bit on Twitter since I can. I can. I can focus on that one. You're, not, not, on you're not on the board of Twitter. And, uh, and have, if, you, have if, you, Adam. if you if you, have, if you want to understand the sort of uh, the the political dynamic in, in Silicon Valley, it was you know in, in 2015, 2016, everybody at Twitter wanted Sanders to become president. That would that would probably be the person that the the median employee at Twitter would have would have liked. And um, you know, they're sort of smoking pot and not doing much work, but you know, it's sort of a, the business just sort of runs itself. Um, but it dawned on them one day that uh, they, they were actually they were just working for for Mr. Trump every day that they came to work. That, that he, you know, he's the most effective user of their platform, and uh, and that that leads to um, you know a really extreme amount of cognitive dissonance and uh, and, 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 and and a lot of a lot of derangement. But more, I, more I, 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 I certainly think that uh, that uh, Twitter was more helpful to. Um, to the Republicans in 2016 than to the Democrats. That, that's, that's clear. And I think something like this is probably true of, you know, of, of Facebook and of Google and of all, all, these, um, all, these, um, all these platforms because um, the mainstream media had a you know, super narrowly controlled narrative. And we were able to get you know, other ideas out. You know, there, was a, you know, there was a question whether you know, there was, you know, the, the mainstream media talked about uh, President Trump's tax returns. It never talked about, you know, Hillary Clinton's health. And then, you know, Hillary Clinton had, you know, her 9-11 on September 11, 2016, where she had her fainting spell in Brooklyn. And, you know, and, and there were these other channels through which you could get questions out about her health and um, have a debate. And you, you could have a sort of a two-way um, discussion like this. And I think, um, you know, I think there's obviously some attempt to rein this in to get it even more controlled you know, in 2020 and 2024, and we, we have to push back. But I would say, at, at this point in time, it's still better than the alternative. If you, if you shut down the Internet, um, that would help the left. Pa- uh, part of um, what we're talking about, you know, it touches... When we're talking, let's say, about Google, for example, you're talking about companies that... I mean, we, we, we have the advent now of these companies that aren't really American companies. And so they don't really, uh, or at least they don't feel that they have to answer to anyone. Uh, they can be, uh, they can prostitute themselves completely. They don't have to think about, is this right or is this wrong? If, if, uh, if they can make more money, they can, they can do whatever. And so when you see this happening for the first time, I mean, whether it's the NBA or Nike or Google, that they don't seem to understand what freedom is, what has allowed them uh, to become who they are. And so they're going to places like China, and they seem to me at least partially to be selling their souls to get more money. And, and I think uh, in, in their defense, they seem genuinely to be ignorant of what American-style freedom is or, or what a virtuous free market is, they really don't seem 
to get that. Uh, one of the reasons uh, that I've supported this president, and I know that you have, is because he sees some of this, and he sees that there are values that we should uphold, um, and he sees that China presents a particular threat uh, to us and temptation uh, to, to others. So what are, what are your views, I guess, uh, on, on what I've just said, and particularly with regard to, to China? Well, I... Uh Look, I think I think um, you know the, um, the the sort of geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. and China um, are going to be the def- defining one for for this country for the next uh, uh, next few decades. Um, it is amazing that uh, it took us this long to focus on it. I think that uh, you know I think there was so- somehow we had uh, you know the zombie years with um, with the Bushes and the Clintons and the Bushes again and. And, and Obama, we had sort of, you know, it, it was like I, I understand why Nixon and Reagan were pro-China, because um, it was seen as a counterweight to, to the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, but after '89, there should have been a reassessment. And Bush 41, he was too in cahoots with China. The Clintons, you know, they 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 campaigned to be tough on China, and then that changed about two years into the Clinton administration in '94. Um, Bush 43 again. Um, no pushback on China, and then Obama, um, you know, just uh, not, nothing at all. So it's, the hour is very late, but, uh, but I think there, there is sort of a recognition that, um, you know, we are, we are um, major, um, we have very radically different views of the world, of the future of the world, and, uh, and we, we need to take, take this stuff seriously on, on many levels. I think, um, I think within, you know, one of the things I've, I've criticized Google for is, um, um, and this, again, it's sort of like a narrow thing, but in some ways illustrative of, of um, sort of the insanity of Silicon Valley, where um, the, um, you sort of have to think of the crown jewels of Google's research are, are, are sort of um, are its AI research. And uh, um, they sort of pulled out of a contract with the military, Project Maven, where they were going to help um, uh, the military with some of their, their AI technology. And then at the same time, they continue to transfer to you know, various Chinese research institutes, which are course, linked to the Chinese military because everything in China is sort of one, one giant Borg-like thing. And, um, and this is, to my, to my way of thinking, something that is absolutely extraordinary. It never happened in the Cold War that a company the scale of Google would um, not work with our government and would work with, um, with our uh, geopolitical rivals. And, and I think, you know, I think this was like genuinely surprising to Google when I pointed this out and that this was, you know, that maybe they were doing something wrong or something like this. If you like don't this. mind, uh, my asking, when did you, how did you point I, I, it I point, out? I gave, I gave a speech on this summer of, last summer. And, um, and then, you know, there's, there's always some sort of pushback. But, but I, think, um, I think the self-understanding at a place like Google is that it's cosmopolitan and it's universal and it's sort of multicultural and it's, op- it's global, it's open to the whole world. And then I think the reality is that it's not cosmopolitan at all. It's incredibly parochial. It's sort of designed to have the look and feel of an inward-facing college campus that's completely right. unaware and completely clueless about, um, about the rest of the world. Well, everything you've just said, though, really, to sum it up, uh, is that those people who think that way, and certainly they think that way uh, in uh, most of the cultural elites uh, in the West today, think along the same lines, and you could boil it down to the phrase anti-Americanism. Fundamentally, they, they, they have an animus uh, 
toward the United States of America, toward what we have been, toward what we've represented. I mean, you saw that in Obama uh, to, to some extent, a kind of a, a sense of shame for our greatness rather than a pride in our, in our greatness. And I feel like, you know, uh, unless you're teaching people why America is great, what has made uh, her great, how can you expect people uh, at, at places like Google? I mean, we, we should have assumed that. Why would we ever think that they would be proud uh, to help America, uh, whether it's against China or just to help us in, in general? I, w- I wasn't surprised. I was horrified, well, but I you, wasn't you, surprised. You'd, you'd expect, I mean, it is, after all, it is mainly an American company, and you'd think they well, would, that's the point. They, 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 that there would be some sort of rational self-interest where they would help us even if they didn't really believe but, it. But and isn't that uh, like saying that Yale is an American university? They couldn't be more anti-American. They, they just can't say it. But their, their worldview is, is very hostile to what we think of as America. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you. I, I, I can't quite explain it. Maybe, maybe you know, I think, I think, um, I think sort of the, uh, the way in which Silicon Valley is sort of a, uh, a one-party state um, and um, you know, sort of looking ask questions why why it has gotten as as extreme as it has, and I think um, I think certainly a part of it links back to the university dis- discussion where Silicon Valley has the most educated workforce in the country uh, with the most largest percentage of people who went to these top elite universities and so somehow the Yale problem is a silicon valley problem at this point they're, yeah. they're the same thing and and um, and from my point of view you know what What's going on in these places is not that people are getting educated. They're, they're just getting brainwashed. Yeah. Well, there's, there's no doubt about that. And I guess – so my question then uh, sort of touches on Trump. Um, it has uh, thrilled me to see him after decades of uh, presidents ignoring these things, really shamefully ignoring a great threat, to see him deal with China and in a way seem to get – that uh, we, we need to deal with, with Google and, 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 and others. Is that one of the reasons? Did you see any of that early on? Is that one of the reasons you, you supported uh, Trump as publicly as you did? Well, I, I certainly think um, that the whole globalization project isn't quite working the way it's, it's supposed to anymore. And, um, and you can sort of think of globalization on, I always think of it as, um, there's a lot of different ways to cut it, but one way to think of the globalization project is on four separate uh, metrics. You have the movement of people, which is immigration policy. You have the movement of goods, which is uh, trade. You have the movement of um, money, which is banking and capital markets. And you have uh, the movement of ideas, which is, which is the Internet. And, um, and for you know, a variety of reasons we can go into, um, we've sort of um, been invested in, uh, in this globalization project, look uh, hook, line, and sinker, as a country for, uh, for many decades. And there are sort of all sorts of ways it hasn't quite been, been working uh, for, for quite some time in uh, at least the first two and maybe, may, maybe all, all four of these. And, uh, and that, you know, per- perhaps um, the thing that the United States should do is that, um, you know, um, it should become the center of the resistance to the one world state. This is the, this is the country where the one world state stops. And... Um, and uh, you know, I, I can understand that um, there were different, there were sort of, there were libertarian, there were conservative reasons to to believe in supranational structures at different times. You know, uh, Margaret Thatcher, as late as 1979, still was pro EU because she, she thought that the uh, bureaucracy in Brussels would help her smash the labor unions in the UK. Yeah. And uh, this is why this wow. is why Jeremy Corbyn. 
today is still a closet Brexiteer because he's still stuck in the 1970s and he still thinks um, that these supranational institutions are somehow capitalist or something like this. But, uh, but we need to update our thinking and we need to realize that uh, 2020 is not 1980 or 1970 and, um, and that these sort of uh, supranational institutions are actually, you know, they're not working in the interests of the United States. You know, there was a, I think there was a New Dealer conceit like this in the late 1940s that you were going to have these uh, global institutions that would help the United States uh, run, run the planet. And at this point, um, and you know, they, it, 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 it semi-worked in the 1950s. You know, in the 1950s, even the United Nations was a pro-American institution. And then we can sort of date, you know, at what point did these various institutions get hijacked and taken over? I think the UN was somewhere in the 1960s. You know, the WTO was probably, certainly by the time China entered in 2001. Um, at this point, most of, the, uh, most of these supranational institutions are anti-American. And probably instead of trying to uh, work inside them, we should, we should withdraw, we should resist. And the U.S. should be the center of the resistance of the one world state. Uh, I heartily agree. I, uh, I'm looking through my notes. There's a, there's a quote uh, that you did an interview with the um, New Yorker magazine in 2011, and you said uh, that you believe... Oh, here it is. You said, I believe Christianity to be true. Uh, I don't feel a compelling need to convince other people of that. Um, I think that's somehow, at least somehow, self-contradictory. Uh, because I think it's at the heart of believing that Christianity is true that you would feel that compulsion to convince other people of that. So uh, w- what did you mean by that, or do, do, you, do you mean the same thing by that? Do you feel the same way as you did then, or can you expand on that idea? Well, may- maybe, that was, um, maybe that was not as artfully worded as I would have, would have worded that today. I, Were you afraid the New Yorker would call you out on your Christianity? I, no, I think, I, think that, uh, I think that in certain contexts, like in New York City, uh, perhaps just saying that you're Christian is, um, is, is, is enough courage for people to have. It does and, enough. And so, um, you know, I, th- I, think, I think there was, you know, there was, there was this whole, um, there was this, this whole, uh, this whole doc, doctrine where, um, you were not supposed to sin against the Holy Spirit. If you denied the Holy Spirit, you couldn't be saved. There was all these debates in the you know, third, fourth century um, about that, and uh, and you know we're probably not. It's probably not quite as bad as the you know Roman Empire under Diocletian or something like that. But uh, but one gets the sense that uh, it's. Uh, I, I tend to think it, it's a decent amount of courage to just say that you're Christian, and and uh, so in a, maybe not in a small town in Alabama. Maybe you have to do more there. But if you're in Manhattan and that's all you say. Uh, in my book, that's, that, that's you, plenty. Would you agree that by following up, by saying that you believe Christianity to be true, if that takes courage, would you say by saying, I don't feel a compelling need to convince other people of that, uh, that you have reduced the amount of courage? Uh, sure. I will concede I would not word it quite the same way today. Uh, well, of course, this is 2011. We were just kids then, I know. Um, but when you say you think Christianity is true, what, what do you mean by that, if I can ask a, a really open question? Uh, well, I think, I think it says... Um, I, I, th- I think that... Um, well, I, I, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. I think that... The bodily uh, resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Christ. So I think that's the central miracle. Um, and uh, I, th- I, think that, uh, I think that there is a way in which it gives us an understanding of 
of, of the world. I think that it is, um, you know, there's, uh, I, I studied under Rene Girard, who's this uh, um, professor at Stanford, who um, I think was one of the greater Christian thinkers of the, uh, of, of the 20th century. And um, I, I think that there's an anthropology in Christianity. There's an understanding of, of human nature um, where we're in the image of God. We're mimetic. We try to, um, you know, and we need, we need good role models. The only good role model for us is Christ. You know, all other role models lead to interpersonal conflicts of, of one sort or another. Um, and, um, and so I think there are sort of a, a lot of things about it that are they're true. There's sort of ways we can, you know, offer an apologetic for it. Um, you know, but it, but it is, you know, on some, on some level, uh, I, I, often, I often think that uh, if you go back to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, I often think um, that the, the two most important ones are the first and last on the list, the first commandment and the tenth. The first one is you should only worship God. You should look up to, um, to, to the one true God. Um, and then the tenth one is you should um, not look around at your neighbor. You should not covet the things that belong to your neighbor. And uh, when... Um, you know, when you do not have a transcendent uh, religious belief, it, um, you end up just looking around at other people, and I think, uh, and I think that is sort of the problem with um, with our sort of atheist liberal world that it is um, it is just the madness of crowds. It's 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 um, it's it's not it's not reason. It's it's not rational. It's just mass insanity. Does that tie into your idea in the um, in the book? It's, it's, there's always, a, you know, I always think if you sort of contrast an evangelical Christian Bible study where the, you know, the outward-facing thing is often that people are somehow more moral or, or better, and then the inward-facing thing is that you're kind of sinful and that you have to, there's a lot of stuff you fix. If you were in the Bible study and said, you know, I figured out I'm, everything's perfect in my life, uh, you probably haven't quite gotten the message. But, I, um, but whatever the sort of paradoxes and contradictions around that are, I think there's sort of a, a strange contrast with what I sort of describe as the atheist rationalist uh, sort of group where the outward facing thing is that you're more rational than people and the inward facing thing is that you're not capable of thought at all. That it's just spaghetti code and the mind is not capable of thought and to, to use the sort of Thomistic medieval distinction, uh, you know the, the medievals believed in the weakness of the will but the power of the intellect and the moderns believe in the power of the will but the weakness of the intellect and so I think um, you know, yes, I think faith and reason are compatible, and um, and in fact, uh, in fact, when, when you get rid of faith, you end up in a world where there's no reason either, and that's and we're living in a much less rational world than we lived in a hundred years ago. Do you, when you talk about um, you know coveting, uh, do, in, in your book uh, Zero to One, you talk about how when um, you're trying to build a company, and, and, and when they get stuck on competing with, you know, uh, Hertz, Avis, whatever it is, when, when they get uh, stuck on competing, they lose sight of the larger goal, which is not just to, de- to defeat the other guy, but uh, to do something greater or whatever. Do, do those ideas tie together, or am I just making that? Sure, sure. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're too focused on... Um your enemies, your rivals, your competition, it becomes very hard to form a team that's going to work on some transcendent goal or transcendent purpose. Um, you know, if you, if you categorize it in terms of the seven mortal sins of medieval Catholicism, I always think, um, 
you know, you can sort of debate which ones are the worst. You know, officially, Pride is supposed to be the worst. I, I, I always think you can use Gilligan's Island as sort of a mnemonic for this, where the professor is pride, and you know, the skipper is anger, and Mr. Howell is greed, and Mrs. Howell is sloth. That's why she married Mr. Howell. Um, and uh, you know, g- g- Ginger is lust. Gilligan's always eating food. He's gluttony. But um, Marianne, but the, Marianne's envy. She wants to be Ginger. And um, and um, and I think um, and I think. Uh, I think in some ways um, that, that's the one I, I, I'm most worried about, the Marianne's in our society. And that's, that's here, that, here. That, I believe that's the, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the, that's the, uh, um, envy is it, is, it is the one mortal sin that is still completely taboo. All the others can be sort of turned into something positive. You know, greed is good, Gordon Gecko, whatever. You know, there's sort of ways you can flip all the others around. Um, you know, envy is, is the one we still don't talk about. And um, as a result, I suspect it's the one that's somehow still uh, sort of pervasive and, and the most destructive. Um, to, uh, to bring things to a shallower level briefly, uh, I should point out that in 2006, we did a Socrates in the City event uh, around C.S. Lewis. Um, and my friend, the film director, Norman Stone, is here. He had directed a film about C.S. Lewis. And who showed up with a friend uh, to that event, to my shock, but I have a picture, Tina, Tina Louise, who played Ginger. Uh, just, just so we know uh, that that really happened. That really happened. Um, well, you, you, you talk about, uh, in, in the book, and this is, it's all related. I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting to me. But you say that uh, we've given up our sense of wonder at secrets left to be discovered. So to go back to the beginning of the conversation, the idea that you know, we could wipe out cancer or Alzheimer's or, or anything like that. Um, so, so two questions. Uh, first of all, why are you hopeful, if, if you are hopeful, and also related to the sense of wonder and the secrets left to be discovered? I think somehow, I, I would argue, and maybe this goes against this interiority idea of yours, but that God, faith in God, is an endlessly self-revealing secret. In other words, that as we pursue God, uh, we are inescapably pursuing a kind of science because to know God is to become more and more grounded in the reality of his creation and that those things um, are, are related. So, so the first question was, why are you hopeful if you think we've given up our sense of wonder at secrets left to be discovered? Well, I, I, I think um, I don't think we're at the end of history. I don't think we know everything. Um, um, I certainly refuse to believe that everything has been discovered that's going to be discovered. And uh, I think there are all sorts of contexts where where we can um, still um, still come come to understand uh, understand new things. I I think um, you know just to push back a little bit on um, uh, you know sort of the. the I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with Christian interiority the way you describe it, but um, I, I always think it would be somewhat inadequate if, if it was just that and nothing more. You know, uh, when, when, I was, you know when I was an undergraduate, the, sort of the campus crusade idea was still always, you know, God has a plan for you and for your life, and you could figure it out, but then it would translate into a vocation to something you were supposed to do. We don't talk like that anymore. As a culture, not just Christians. You know, as, 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 as Christians, we don't talk like that anymore. And we, it's, it's sort of much more uh, the sort of pop psychology 
um, a la Jordan Peterson or, or something like that. And I, I don't think, um, I, I think it has to be more than, than just psychological. You, you refer in the book, we've just got a couple of minutes left here, but um, uh, somebody called Peter Pan and hold that bus. Uh, I know you have to get out of here, but um, I just want to say, uh, I want to say that um, when you talk about this, I think of people like William Wilberforce, who saw the slave trade as an abomination and spent his life effectively, because he was a Christian, crusading against that. And that seems to me to uh, sum up the kind of thing you're talking about. Now, our faith has to be translated into action, if I had to sum it up. But let's, let's, let's go in a slightly different direction with this. If, you know, if we sort of think about like what are, you know, what are the, the, the real challenges in our, our society, and what, what is sort of you know, at the core of, um, of let's say, of, 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 of um, atheist liberalism today. And um, I always think there are two different kinds of arguments. It's, it's worth differentiating. And one is, one is, is that um, it's sort of a metaphysical set of arguments. God doesn't exist. The Bible's not true. Sort of set of arguments like that. But there's a second, which is something like the Christians aren't Christian enough. And, um, and I think that we have to think of what we're struggling against as um, hyper-Christianity, ultra-Christianity, something like that. It is, it is sort of an extreme um, deformation of it. And I, th- you know, I, th- I think that there are all sorts of forms that this, uh, this takes. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's not that um, there's a shortage of morality. I think there's too much morality. I mean, Greta is so moral, she wants to shoot everybody who doesn't you know, <laughs> line them up against the wall and shoot them if you're, if you're not as right. committed to, to climate change. Or if, if you think about sort of medieval Christianity, um, you know, the two most important attributes of Christ were his divinity, and the second most important one was that he was poor. And so anyone you saw was poor right. might be Christ in right. disguise. But then um, in the 19th century, you had people like Tolstoy or Marx that sort of um, pushed this in a hyper-Christian direction, and we had to do more than the Christians. We had to have a violent revolution. We are going to do more for the poor in this world right away. Um, and that's, that, that's what I think um, the, the contrast always is. And so I think, I, think the, uh, I think the Christian alternative to this is always to come back to see that uh, you know, we're, we're in this context that we're not... Um, that, that, um, that you know, it's, it's only if you realize that you're in a context where things are pretty screwed up that you have any chance of, of, of moving, um, moving beyond it. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, um, the, the, two, the two vignettes I always give on this are, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, that I think of as sort of examples of the alternative to hyper-Christianity. What would the alternative look like? There's the, in, in the Ethiopian um, Coptic tradition, Pontius Pilate is seen as a saint, and uh, the reason is that um, you can't expect more from a politician. You can't expect more from government. Um, it, is, um, it is, you know, because after all, he almost listened to his wife, and he had this dream, and he had some misgivings. And, you know, you just can't expect more. And, that's, that's, uh, and it's not that if you had lived in the time of Christ, you would have done better, which was, you know, the, the cause for medieval anti-Semitism was, you know, you should... Uh, go after the Jews because they'd killed Christ. If we'd lived in the time of Christ, we would have done better. Or the modern liberals who say they would have been more tolerant in the, in the Middle Ages, whereas you know, it's, the, it's the people who, um, who style themselves as being part of the resistance. Uh, that, that very fact often tells you that they would have just been collaborators because they, you know, or something like that. That's, um, and um, and uh, the, second, the second vignette on this that I, that I always give is uh, I'm you know, not, not Catholic, but I think the 
there's something about the Catholic doctrine of the transubstantiation that's always um, super um, humbling, where it's, it's literally the body and blood of Christ, and you are still no better than a cannibal, and it's a cannibalistic meal, and you're still... The problems of human nature, the problems of violence are this continuous with the past. And the only hope we have of doing better are to realize that we're still this contiguous with the entire human past. Um, And when we think we've set that behind us, we've transcended it, we're much better, we're hyper-Christian, we're communist, we're, you know, we're um, we're the the tolerant people who would have been super tolerant in the Middle Ages... Um, that's when you're simply worse. I have to say, uh, you're, you're a pretty sharp guy, Pete. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know what, uh, what Ann was thinking about when she said you weren't. I, I think that everybody here would, would disagree, would say that you're a pretty sharp guy. And I think most of us would also uh, say, and I, uh, at the head of the pack, that we're just so grateful to you uh, for coming here, being a part of our little group called Socrates in the City. I know... You didn't do it for the money. Uh, and, You're making uh, all sorts of assumptions about how much money I have. Yeah, and that's, and no, 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 it's because how little we pay. That's what you I shouldn't meant. believe everything you um, read on the internet. But you, uh, <laughs> that was, I think actually that was my final question. It was uh, given, uh, given uh, your tremendous wealth, uh, h- how can you help me specifically? Um, I'm going to leave it at that. I, um, I really will let you go, but not before I say again how genuinely grateful I am, Peter, uh, for m- much of what you do, but specifically for, for just coming here and being willing to, you know, submit uh, to the petty humiliation of being introduced by me and, uh, and then submit to the, to the free-form nature of the conversation. I'm just really, really grateful to you, and we're going uh, to let you go, but before that... Uh, I'm going to give you a copy of my, my new books. Here you go. And I know, I know Bonhoeffer was a little heady for you. And, uh, and I just thought, this maybe you'll, maybe you'll like these. But uh, we really do want to say thank you. So, folks, as Peter leaves, how about a rousing Socrates in the city? Thank you. <laughs>